Well, I got some good news and some bad news for you. <clears throat> Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. <laughs> Are you ready? Are you? Wow, that's amazing. We don't have a Christmas tree up or anything. So, anyway, I love the way Luke begins uh, his story of the uh, the Christmas narrative. It, uh, and I'm, I'm going to read a little bit about the angels. Uh, telling the shepherds the good news. So just listen to how he begins and how he ends, because I find it really, really fascinating. Listen to what he says. And the angel said to them, fear not, fear not. For behold, I, tell, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Don't be afraid, be at peace. I think you could probably summarize the Christmas story in that little phrase. Because of the incarnation, we don't need to fear because of the coming of the Son of Man, we can know peace. We can be the most peaceful, tranquil, reconciled people on the planet. Don't be afraid. Have peace, because the Prince of Peace has come. The blessing is that as Christians, we can know peace. We can be fearless. We don't need to wrestle with anxiety and worry. We can have peace, serenity, and contentment. But my hunch is, if you're anything like me, instead of enjoying peace the way that we should, we live in this state of sort of constant low-grade panic. Can you relate to that? Instead of serenity... Many of us live with stress. Does anybody want to say amen? Amen. amen? Instead of contentment, often we have conflict. And it shouldn't be that way. And we know that it shouldn't be that way. For many of us, peace is an illusion. But we know that we should have it. We know theologically that it is ours by right. We long for it. But too often it eludes us. And it sometimes seems that the message of the angels to the shepherd, don't be afraid, be at peace, seems like some sort of cruel joke. Because the circumstances of life conspire to create stress and anxiety and fear and worry in our hearts. Now the good news is this, Paul understood that this is part of the human condition. He understood that the people in the, some of the people at least in the Philippian church were struggling with this issue. And so we're not alone and I don't think we are strange. This, this challenge between knowing that we should have peace and not having it at all times is part and parcel of the Christian journey. And so as he begins the conclusion to his letter, he begins to speak about peace in a very practical way. And how we as Christians can realize the peace that God wants us to have. 
Sadly, many of us live with broken relationships on a horizontal level. We don't have peace. We don't have peace on a personal level either. And sometimes our relationship with God seems distant and cold, and we wonder, where is the peace of God in my life? And so in this passage of Scripture that I'm going to read for you in a second after I pray, Paul is going to speak about relational peace, inner peace, and spiritual peace. Relational peace, peace with others. Inner peace, peace of mind, peace of heart, and spiritual peace, the peace of God. So let me read this passage for you, starting at verse 2 of Philippians chapter 4. And it says this, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yet, Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Father, I pray this morning that the peace that we know is ours by right as your children, that peace that passes all understanding, the peace that you left, not as the world gives peace, but as you singularly give peace. I pray that that would be our experience today and increasingly throughout this Christmas season as we come to understand more and more and more what it means to be held in the hollow of the hand of the one who called himself the Prince of Peace. Open our minds and our hearts to receive this message, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's start with relational peace. And I want to read again for you, verse 2 and following. Two women are fighting in the church. They're having an issue. They're having a conflict. And Paul says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, you'll probably notice that I didn't follow the way the chapter is divided up or the verses are divided up in your Bible, the, set, the headings. And that's because those headings and those verses and those divisions aren't in the original text. And they've been divided by somebody. And, and I want to explain to you why I'm taking this section as a, as a chunk right here, because it just makes more sense that we would do it this way. So we've got Eodia and Syntyche, two women in the church, two very prominent women who are estranged over an issue. We don't know what the issue is, but these two women had labored side by side with Paul in the cause of the gospel and had been incredibly instrumental in the success of the Philippian church. We don't know how this conflict started. We don't know how far it had spread throughout the church. But Paul wanted it healed. He wanted it dealt with. 
And so he asked someone that he calls his true companion. Scholars suggest that this probably could be Luke, who was now back in Philippi giving some influence and leadership to the church. But we don't know who this person is. And he asked this, this person to intervene in order to bring about healing. Now, this division, was causing, this division was causing hurt to the church. It was bringing disrepute to the name of Christ, and it was denying the gospel. It was hurting the church. It was causing the name of Jesus to be sullied, and it was denying the gospel of reconciliation and unity and love that these women had previously been transformed by. So what does Paul do? He does a couple of things. First of all, he addresses the disagreement publicly. Now, if, he, if Paul had wanted to, he could easily have sent a note to his true companion through Epaphroditus and just say, look, give this to my true companion, if it was Luke or whomever, because I, I want him to go quietly to these two women and help them patch it up. But he doesn't do that. I don't know, I don't know what, what sort of response happened in the church when this was read out that Sunday night after the potluck dinner when they were sitting around and, hey, we've got a letter from Paul. Let's read it together. So it was read. And we get to this section right here. I don't know how many people knew about this conflict I don't know if these women even knew that anybody else knew about it beyond sort of this inner circle. But I'm guessing there must have been some sort of gasps and quick looks at these two women. Paul exposes the conflict, and this is typical of how he deals with these things. He doesn't ever sweep them under the rug. He doesn't pretend that they don't exist. He doesn't believe that Unity is just the lack of overt conflict. He wants this thing dealt with, and so he exposes it. He makes it publicly, public, and that's hugely significant. Secondly, he reminds these two women to rejoice in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to say it to you again. Rejoice in the Lord. Think about what Jesus has done. Think about the cross. Think about his mercy. Think about his forgiveness. Think about his grace. Think about all that God in Christ has done for you. Iodia, Syntyche, rejoice in the Lord. Get excited again about what Jesus has accomplished for you. Think about the gospel. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, be reasonable. Be reasonable. The word reasonable here means gentle. Means gentle, compassionate, tender, merciful, gentle. So Paul exposes the conflict. Transparency was critical to Paul. Secondly, think about the cross. Think about Jesus. Think about redemption that you have received. Think about what Christ has done for you. And then be reasonable, be gentle. I'm convinced that Paul's approach to dealing with conflict in the church, to bringing peace to relational brokenness in the church, was rooted in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there back to Matthew 18. I want to read this passage of Scripture for you because it's so critical to maintaining, finding and maintaining peace in the church. 
Look at what he says, Matthew 18, verse 15. These are the words of Jesus, the Son of God. If your brother or your sister sins against you, go and tell him his or her fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained a brother. If he does not listen, take two or three others along with you that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. Make it more public. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Make it more public. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Here Jesus lays out a process that the church is to use in helping people find unity when that can't be done just between the parties. But the first step is always a private conversation. And that first step often is the step that exposes and reveals the conflict. I remember years ago, I was at church one Sunday morning and someone came up to me and they said, I'm upset at you. And I stopped and I said, what did I do? And they said, a couple of weeks ago, Sunday morning, you walked right past me and didn't say hi. And that's very typical. Like I get Sunday morning, ask Pastor Paul, like you're focused, you're just like intent on what you're doing, you've got a sermon to preach, you've got a ton of things on your mind, and I just walked past this person and I didn't say hi. And instantly, that person revealed that there was a conflict, that they had something against me, that they felt wounded by the way I had treated them. They felt disrespected. They didn't feel valued. They didn't feel loved by their pastor. That was a very good lesson for me. And I said to them, I am so sorry. I, I didn't intend that. Would you forgive me? Would you forgive? And I've probably done it lots of times, still. But that person exposed the conflict. They helped me see an area where I was not aware that there was an issue. It was exposed. It was brought to the light. And I thank that person for doing that. Paul also then says, when he says, rejoice in the Lord, he says to these ladies, listen, I've exposed this issue. It's now public. Everybody knows that you're fighting. You can't hide it any longer. I want you to rejoice in the Lord. Think about what Jesus has done. Think about the forgiveness, the mercy of the cross. And then ask yourself this. How can you reasonably, how can you reasonably refuse to share the grace that God has given you in Christ with Eodia or Syntyche? How can you reasonably hold that back? How can you reasonably refuse to do for that other woman what God in Christ has done for you? It is so unreasonable to be almost blasphemous. You see, I'm convinced it's impossible to rejoice in the Lord and not be reasonable, not be gentle with those who have wounded and hurt us. These women, had, these women had not been demonstrating Christian reasonableness or gentleness 
And whenever you find yourself in a conflict that isn't resolved, it's very likely, not always, and I'll explain that in a second, but it's very likely that you are not being reasonable. You are not giving that brother or sister, that husband, wife, that child, that grandparent, whomever, you are not giving them what Jesus has given you, and that is so unreasonable. It is so wrong. How can we not give to others what Christ has given to us? So wrong. If they had been reasonable, if they had been gentle, if they had been a conduit of the love of Christ, this conflict would have been resolved. And Paul knows that. So let me ask you, what does reasonable Christianity look like? This is... You know, peace on earth, goodwill to men. How do we bring that down into my marriage? How do we bring it down into my family? How do we bring it down into my church? What does reasonable Christianity look like when we give to others what God has given to us? Well, the first thing I just read for you from Matthew 18, verse, verse 15 says this. If you know that your brother has hurt you, your sister has wounded you, the Bible says unequivocally, Jesus says unequivocally, go to them. Not the pastor, not an elder, not somebody else in your small group. Go to the one who has hurt you. That's what we are called to do. It's so easy to go to somebody else and say, you're not going to believe what she did to me the other day. That's sinful. That's, that is a direct violation of what Jesus calls us to do. And it foments disunity and deeper conflict in the church to our shame when we do that. If a brother or sister hurts you, you are to go to the one who was hurt or offended or, or wounded you. And as I said a second ago, this is often the first step in exposing the hurt, the wound. Because a lot of times, people don't know that they have hurt you. They honestly don't understand that they have caused you a wound. I didn't, I didn't walk by that person thinking about my message that day or whatever it was in order to wound them. That was not even in my mind. But my behavior, my actions, my carelessness caused a hurt. And this person loved me enough to instead of going to an elder, instead of going to somebody else and saying, you know, that Paul Little, he is such a jerk. He is so arrogant. He only talks to certain people and doesn't talk to other Blah, 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 blah. They came to me because they were followers of Jesus. I hurt them. They came to me. And that's so critical. It's often the first step in transparency. When, so when you do this, what does reasonable Christianity cause you to do? And I learned this years ago, and I want to share it with you. It's a simple little phrase. You can use it with your kids. You can use it with your husband. You can use it with your wife. You can use it with me. And it's simply this. When you go to somebody and you're being a reasonable Christian who, because of the love of Christ and the transformation of the gospel and forgiveness and grace, you are taking that step of obedience to go into the life of another person and speak to them about your hurt. Here's what you say. When you did X in situation Y, I felt 
Z or Z, depending on what side of the border you're on. When you did X in situation Y, I felt. I felt. It's not, you're such a jerk because you hurt me. How could you be so selfish? How could you say those words? How could you act that way? You're not accusing, you're not condemning. All you're doing is you're putting your heart out there. When you did X in situation Y, I felt, I felt, I felt. So when my wife comes to me and says that, Paul, when you did that in that situation, here's what I felt. I felt disrespected. I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel that you were showing me the proper care. I didn't feel safe. Because I love my wife and because her heart is out there, my instant response is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, would you forgive me? I didn't intend to do that. That was a stupid thing for me to do. I should have thought more before I spoke. Whatever. But that, that situation, just a hypothetical thing, but that situation doesn't get resolved unless my wife loves me enough to come and do what Jesus told her to do. If a brother or sister wounds you, a child, another elder, a pastor, somebody in the church, somebody in your small group, you must go. It's the only reasonable thing that you can do and be reconciled to your brother or sister. And it's such a simple thing. You don't accuse, you don't condemn. You just simply say, when that situation transpired the way it did, when you did X in situation Y, here is what I felt. And a brother or sister, 99.9% .9 out of 100, is going to respond with compassion and mercy and grace. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago, anticipate that Christians will do the right thing? Here's a great example of it. Believe that that brother, that sister will do the right thing, and the reconciliation will create a relationship stronger than existed prior. <clears throat> but secondly, if you know you have hurt a brother, so you're not the one who is now grieved. You know that you have said something, you have done something to hurt a brother or a sister. How do you respond? Well, Jesus speaks to this over in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 says this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. So you're in Jerusalem. Now Jesus is preaching this in Galilee. He's talking to people in Galilee. It's a Sermon on the Mount. If you're in Jerusalem and you're offering your gifts at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, I want you to think about this. Galilee to Jerusalem, about 160 kilometers so this guy has gotten his horse or his donkey or whatever, he's walked it, 160 kilometers from Galilee down to the temple. He's offering his, making his offering, he's worshiping God, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God reminds him, you know what, you said something, you did something, you behaved in such a way, your brother is hurt, your sister is wounded. Shoot. Well, maybe I'll just sort of do my offering. No, you can't do that. Because relationship becomes before worship. Ugh. 
Okay, 160 kilometers back to Galilee. When I did that, in that situation, I offended you, I hurt you, I wounded you, I shouldn't have done it. Would you please forgive me? That's critical. Would you please forgive me? Sorry's not enough. So when our kids were little, it was like, I'm sorry. Would, would you please forgive me? It's critical. Yeah, I'll forgive you, sure. Okay, 160 kilometers back to Jerusalem. Do the offering. 160 kilometers back home. 600 kilometers. That's that's the premium that Jesus puts on being reconciled to your brother or sister. That's reasonable Christianity. When you know that you have done something to wound a brother, somebody has something against you because of your sin or your foolishness or your idle talk or your carelessness, go and be reconciled. That's the reasonable thing to do. Now, what do you do? What do you do if you put your heart out there and 99.9% of the Christians in your life respond when they see your wound, they see your hurt, respond positively in a Christ-like, loving way? They forgive and, they, and they, the relationship is strengthened. What do you do if you get that 0.1% where that individual doesn't behave properly? They don't, believe, they don't behave reasonably, meaning they don't forgive you or they don't recognize and respond to your hurt. What do you do? What do you do? I love, I love Romans 12 where Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. If there's somebody who is so unreasonable to, receive, to say that they have received the grace of God in Christ and received his love, and received his mercy, and been reconciled to God through what Jesus did on the cross, and if they are not willing to give that away, don't worry about it. It's a very good likelihood that they have never really experienced the, the gospel. Very good, like, very good likelihood they've never experienced the gospel. But you know what? After you've done everything that you've can, you could do to be reconciled to a brother or sister after you have fought valiantly for peace, when you've done all that you can do, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Paul says that in Romans 12, 18. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. But, but peace requires two, right? And after, after you've done everything that you can do, just forget about it. Don't carry a legitimate guilt because it's not necessary. This is basic Christianity, folks. This is, this is Christianity 101. And Paul's teaching Eodia and Syntyche basic Christian principles. Don't cover it up. I'm not going to let you keep it secret. I'm exposing it. I love transparency. Read Corinthians. Man, Paul, Paul just laid it out there. Conflict is part of life. Broken relationships, strained relationships, that's just part of the deal. Get help. Two or three witnesses, Matthew 18 my, my, my dear brother, my friend, my companion, if it's Luke, can you intervene here, help? Like, it's, 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 it's basic stuff. But it's hard to do. And it's hard to do because we are unreasonable. We, we sing about the cross. 
We worship Jesus on Sunday mornings. We gladly receive his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy and his love. But because of our pride and our stubbornness, particularly when we're hurt, we don't want to give it away. Don't be unreasonable. Don't be unreasonable. Peace depends on it. It goes back to the cross. Very quickly, (laughs) inner peace, peace of mind. And this is why I divided this up. If you look at what he says, second half of verse five, the Lord is at hand. Don't be afraid. The Lord is at hand. Don't be afraid. See, this is the peace that Jesus talked about in John 17 where he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let you not your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is the supernatural peace of God that is communicated to us from the presence of God into our fear and into our, into our anxiety. It's a heaven-sent peace that cocoons us in times of fear and anxiety and threat. And it all begins with this understanding that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. He's not talking about the second coming. He's he's talking about the fact about the proximity of Jesus Christ in your life. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is with us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not be afraid because the Lord's there. He is with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Paul knew that overcoming stress and anxiety in our lives was rooted in understanding about the deep sense of nearness and the living presence of Jesus in our lives. And he understands, too, that that understanding, that awareness, leads instantly to prayer, or it should. And so he teaches them how to pray. Teaches them how to pray. And he says this, don't be anxious, but in anything about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he tells them, in everything, in every circumstance, every threatening circumstance, when you feel afraid, pray. Draw near to God in prayer. And ask him with thanksgiving. And that is critical. That is the key, I think, to this verse. Ask him with thanksgiving. So in prayer, we thank God. We ask him and we thank him. And we lay our request out there and we thank him some more. And we begin to remember, we begin to realize again how loved we are. We begin to remember how amazing God is. How big his grace is that he has a plan that is perfect, that nothing comes into our life that isn't first filtered through his loving, caring hands. Even those things that we see as tragic, God has allowed for a purpose. And so as we pray with thanksgiving, focusing on who God is in relationship to us, the threat is diminished and the God who loves us is magnified. And we find rest and peace and a level of contentment that we would never otherwise have found had it not been for our prayer. 
Not only is God at hand, but he holds us in the hollow of his hand. And that's what this prayer teaches us. This is where peace is found. A peace that guards. A peace that surpasses all human comprehension. It's interesting. God doesn't promise to answer our prayers the way that we want them answered. Doesn't promise to take the problems away. Doesn't promise to do what we want him to do or what we are even asking him to do. Although there's nothing wrong with presenting our requests with thanksgiving. He promises something better. He promises peace. He promises peace. So here is a, just my situation right now. I, as you know, I had um, radiation for uh, my prostate bed for, for some residual prostate cancer cells that were, were there. And the doctors say there's about a 90% chance that the radiation will cure it and I'll be cancer-free. And there's a 10% chance that it won't. And I'll spend the rest of, you know, the next number of years fighting prostate cancer. And so does that worry me? You bet it does. Because I'm a worrier. You can look up, you know, worry in the dictionary and there's a nice picture of me smiling back at you. <laughs> I'm the kind of guy that if you're worried about something, I will help you worry about it. <laughs> <clears throat> Which accomplishes absolutely nothing. Worry is the most ridiculous, foolish thing in the world and I do it. I do it. I do it a lot. <clears throat> the only thing that when I start thinking, I start allowing my mind to start going, the only thing, the only thing that sort of arrests that is when I think about this verse and I say, the Lord is at hand. Jesus is with me. He loves me. Lord, I don't want to have cancer. I'd like to continue preaching the gospel and doing what I'm doing for the next 20, 30 years. I know I'm eventually going to die, but could I have a little bit more time? That's my request. But Thanksgiving, you think about what God has done. He saved a wretch like me. When I didn't deserve, when I wasn't looking for, when I was running in the opposite direction, he transformed me by grace. He made me alive when I was dead. And he's given me a wonderful life and an amazing wife and two awesome kids and two reprobate grandkids that are children of Satan that need to, <laughs> need to get born again. Children of Adam, they're not children of Satan, they're children of Adam. And you can see their Adamic nature, and I'm way off topic. Anyway, I've, <laughs> I got so much to be thankful for. God has been so good. 32 years pastoring the same church, falling in love with the same people. God has been so good. And why would I doubt him now? Why would, I, why would I begin to question his goodness and his mercy and his kindness, his plan, his sovereignty? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, so why worry about it? And, and you know, when I get that, sort of take that time, there is a peace that passes all understanding. Heaven-sent peace. God's grace, where you just sort of breathe and you say, it's okay, it's okay. So on the 6th of March, I'll meet with the radiation oncologist and he'll tell me the results. And you can pray that, you know, God heals me, but also pray that whatever the outcome, there will be a sense of God's peace, God's peace. And that's not just unique to me. Any, any of us can have this. 
Any of us can have this. Despite the circumstances, your circumstances may be profoundly different than mine. You may be worrying about money. You may be worrying about a relationship. You may be worrying about your kids. Like you're worrying about all kinds of stuff. The peace of God. The peace of God banishes anxiety. Don't be afraid. The Prince of Peace has come. And the Prince of Peace is still with us. And he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. And then lastly, spiritual peace. <clears throat> spiritual peace. Finally, brothers, Paul keeps on saying finally. He's a, he would have been a great preacher to listen to. Finally, finally again, finally some more. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about that. And then he says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Do that. Think, practice. And I think that's how this passage is supposed to sort of fall apart. How do we know the peace of God? How do we know and sense and rest in and revel in his presence all the time? That God is with us, the peace of God. The God of peace will be with you, he says. Think this way, do this, and the God of peace will be with you. Fill your mind with this, behave this way, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, he's not saying that if you don't, that the God of peace is going to abandon you because that's not who he is. That's not the gospel. But that sense of his presence, that sense of his abiding presence, his benediction in our lives, his pleasure over us can be lost. So what is he saying here? When he says, think in these things, it, it comes after a list of qualities. And, and basically, without going into a whole lot of detail, the, he's talking about the gospel. What can be more true? What can be more honorable? What can be more just? What can be more pure, lovely, and commendable, excellent, worthy of praise than the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ? Nothing. 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 He says, think about what you know. Think about the gospel. Focus on it. Be intent on it. Meditate on it. Delve into it. Dig deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Understand it more and more and more. Focus on those things. Let the gospel capture you. The more it captures you, the more you want to understand it. The more you understand it, the more you want to grow deeper in it. It's a lifetime's pursuit. And that's what Paul is saying here. Think on these things. Focus on these things. And then he says this. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Do it. And so what Paul is saying here is this, that there should be in the Christian life a continuity between what we know and what we do, between profession and practice, between belief and behavior, right? The most miserable Christians on the planet, the most miserable Christians on the planet are people who know the gospel and are not living it. If you want to know the peace of God, if you want to know the presence of God's peace in your life, strive to align what you know and how you live. Now, you're never going to do it perfectly. You never will, ever. 
But the person who knows the gospel and loves the gospel, who is striving to align his or her life with the gospel, is the person who knows the peace of God, the presence of God. And I think that's very quickly, that's how Paul wraps this up. If we know the truth but don't live it, we're going to forgo the presence and the peace of God. So we're going to celebrate Christmas. I think next week the church will be decorated. We're going to start focusing on the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Do you have peace in your life? Is there relational brokenness? Is there turmoil inside and stress and anxiety? And do you feel estranged and distant from God? It's an easy fix. It's an easy fix. Do what's necessary to heal that broken relationship. Do what's necessary through prayer to experience the peace that passes all understanding. And just simply make a commitment to Jesus today to say, Lord, I know the truth and my life is not in tune with the truth. And I'm going to change this morning. I'm simply going to repent. I'm going to, I am by your grace, I'm going to begin to live more consistently what I believe. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that our experience, our heritage, our hope as Christians is peace. A peace that passes all understanding. The peace of God. Peace between brothers and sisters where there could be acrimony and brokenness and Severed relationships, Lord, you create unity in an, in an extraordinary way in the church, in our homes, in our lives. So teach us this morning to be people of peace. And let this Christmas be one where we celebrate the Prince of Peace and enjoy his peace in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.